President of the Greater Miami Crime Commission, I'm calling upon the Dade County Grand Jury and the State Attorney's Office to immediately take criminal action against those that were responsible for the deplorable condition and situation that occurred at the Dade County Auditorium this past weekend when the group known as The Doors, the rock and roll group, attempted to precipitate a riot. This situation is a blot upon our community and those that are responsible for profiting as a result of depravity and immorality as occurred here and where you have children from 9 to 14 years of age being subjected to such obscenities, uh, certainly immediate action is demanded and we are demanding that action this day. guys i just want to hop in here at the beginning i do want to preface this by saying this is an explicit episode this is the first one that i've really done i usually try to cut some of the language out but of course dealing with the subject matter i'm sure you can understand so nothing is censored out i'm letting this roll as is orts and all as they used to put on the bright midnight release boxes everything is here so discretion definitely advised for this episode if you have any small kids or anything i definitely want to be mindful of that if that's something that that you are worried about This podcast is truly a labor of love. Probably the biggest turnaround I've done on a podcast as far as an edit job goes. And I really hope it shows this is a fascinating episode. It may be the most important episode of the podcast recorded to date. It challenges the narrative that we know about the, you know, about Jim Morrison. It could change the way we look at the Morrison estate and and the narrative that's sort of put there. I'm going to present the, you know, I'm going to let Fernanda Mondia present his information and you can take that how you will if you you know whatever you think about it you can roll with it i think there's a evidence to definitely to support it but i know that sometimes the toppling the apple cart's probably not the best thing to do so this is the first episode to kick off the month of miami and it is a doozy i have a lot coming for you i know that if you if you saw my teaser on social media there's going to be some really cool stuff coming up Probably not anything as long as this episode, except for maybe at the end of the month. Again, a great episode. Travis and Fernand are just two fascinating people. And, you know, they really make podcasting easier for me just because they're so knowledgeable about all this stuff. So uh, I hope you guys definitely enjoy this one. And what a bang to start off on the anniversary of the Miami show, of course, and uh, to kick off this month of Miami. Hello and welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast about the doors and everything in between. I'm your host, Bradley Netherton, and joining me today, two individuals who, Travis, I think you've sort of became a, I think you've been on here more than anybody, so maybe you're a de facto co-host at this point, whether you want to or not. I've sort of strong-armed you into that that role. Travis Williamson, all the way from, oh, Touch Me Down Under, I think is what we, your new Doors nickname is. So Brad has been trying to call me Touch Me Down Under for some time, and if he says it enough, it's going to stick... I guess I've just become part of the furniture on this podcast now. There, we have Travis here and Fernand. Probably been on so long ago, many people probably don't remember him, but uh, he's back after such a long time. I think it's seven days or so by the time we get this podcast up. But great feedback on his episode, so we had to have him back so quick. And who 
better to talk about Miami than someone born and bred a couple hundred yards away from the venue itself. Fernanda Mondi, University of Miami professor, pollster, which is probably even an understatement for that. Fernanda, thanks for coming back on, man. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us. Bradley, it's a pleasure to be back and to be here with Travis and talk about Miami, which is where I am, the scene of the crime, so to speak, for that most infamous and climactic of shows for The Doors and, of course, Jim Morrison. Today, we're going to talk a lot about the show itself, what caused it, the tape. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground in a little bit of an amount of time, but I love diving into this and really talking about the venue and stuff to begin with. So I do have some notes on the venue, and of course, you being from the area, you can maybe even color some of this in if you want to go even further in depth. But we're, of course, talking about The Doors at the Dinner Key Auditorium on March 1st, 1969. The Dinner Key Auditorium was originally on an island, I did a lot of deep diving in this, thought that was pretty cool, but it was connected to the mainland in 1914 after they filled in the intervening space. And an early source attributes the name to the island being a convenient place to stop, to eat while traveling on boat between the mouth of the Miami River and the Snapper Creek south of Miami. And the auditorium, of course, opened in 1917 as a hangar of the Dinner Key Naval Air Facility, and the base was decommissioned in 1945 and sold to the city a year later. And the main hangar was converted in 1950 into a non-air-conditioned exhibition hall that doubled as an arena which will come up later. Travis, I know you did have a bit about this, if you wanted to share that. In my interviews with Vince Trainer, he he did tell me that, and I think he realized this while we were discussing it as well. It's one of those moments that you just have to capture. He recalled being at that airplane hangar in 1939 with his grandfather, and he would have been probably four years old at the time. I don't know how he remembers that, but he claims to remember being there as a four-year-old boy. Fernand, did you have anything, any family ties to Miami's Dinner Key Auditorium? Like I said, I was born overlooking Dinner Key Marina in the heart of Coconut Grove and and a hospital that's literally yards away from there. And, And where I live now in Coconut Grove is... If I look out my window, I could probably see on yeah. a clearer day where Dinner Key was. But it, it's really an interesting spot, as as you and Travis talked about, because it was it was the site of an old Pan American terminal, airplane terminal, where the seaplanes and the transatlantic planes used to fly from that area. In fact, President Roosevelt, when he flew to one of the World War II conferences, took off for the first major transatlantic flight from Dinner Key Terminal, which is now today the site of Miami City Hall. It doesn't surprise me that Vince remembers Vince Trainer because Vince has one of the most incredible memories of anybody I've ever talked to. And, and I do believe him. If he says he remembers it at four, he certainly remembers the night of March 1st because he had probably the best seat in the house and the most direct contact with Jim to be able to answer definitively the question that a lot of people wanted to know, which is, did he do it or did he not? Vince is certainly someone who I would put a lot of credibility and stock into what he has to say about the arena and the hangar itself. Yeah. And getting into that, I also wanted to talk about it was a music venue. The Doors have most famously played there. Anything you look up in relation to Dinner Key Auditorium, you're going to see The Doors but you don't see many other artists linked to it. But there were other artists. I found this interesting with Bo Diddley and Bill Haley and his comics played there in 56. Ray Charles played there in 63 and 66. The Four Tops and Stevie Wonder played November 2nd of 1965. The Lemon, the Lovin' Spoonfuls played in 66. Vanilla Fudge, one of the great heavy psychedelic rock groups that I don't think get their due, played there in May of 68. Blood, Sweat, and Tears in March of 1970, which, of course, after the Miami incident and Grand Funk Railroad in June of 1970. So a swath of groups, and there's also 
in 58, I think I was looking, there's a great Facebook group about Miami in particular. And I found myself just sort of going down the rabbit hole there, but there was a, a big country concert that had the biggest names in country in 1958 where they held this here. So there's so much music history in, in Miami in general, but in dinner key auditorium. And one of the funny things too, is the other uses you'll see like the Miami Floridians, a very on the nose name for an American basketball association team who played the, some of their home games at the auditorium in 1969 and 1970, because the building was not air conditioned and management would throw open the doors, forcing players to adjust their shots by the ocean breezes that whistled onto the court. Of course, the team finished with a 23 and 61, pretty abysmal record there. And the venue, you know, it, it hosted all these events usually between 1951 and 1978 is really the bread and butter of when this was, but it hosted weekly boxing matches in the late 60s, early 70s, and even had a training facility on site. And one of the people I even saw in the group said either Muhammad Ali or Joe Frazier trained there in the early days of the CWF, which is wrestling. I'm a huge wrestling fan. Used to be not as much now, but in South Florida, that was one of the biggest independent promotions at the time in the 1970s. The Dinner Key Auditorium actually held, held a lot of their spot shows. It was basically just smaller shows that they had at these smaller arenas where these people could come see it, you know, when they're in the touring days. And one of the biggest superstars ever, the newly christened American Dream Dusty Rhodes, he was vying for all three of the biggest titles in wrestling at the time, the AWA, NWA, and WWWF. So the, it's just interesting that you have all these these sort of counterpoints meeting here in Miami. It eventually was named the Coconut Grove Center, but it's held everything from the inter, the Miami International Orchard Show, the Cuban Nostalgia Expo, Sailing Weeks, live art fairs, antique and jewelry shows, as well as the filming of all seven seasons of The Burn Notice. So here, Dinner Key Auditorium hits on every aspect of culture, art, anything you could think of. So just a very fascinating background of this arena. And by the time Vince got there to load in the equipment, he said it had been basically used by homeless people for sleeping and as a toilet i think that was his description he said the place smelled horrible wow yeah you know at coconut grove at the time a lot of people think about miami today and they think about all the nightclubs and nightlife and the cultural scene in miami beach and in other parts of the city the downtown but back in 1969 when the doors played coconut grove was the center of cultural artistic and the hippie life so to speak just across the way, there was a famous park called Peacock Park, and it was kind of like Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco or these areas where a lot of young people in the countercultural congregate, and a lot of them who lived there and didn't really have a place to stay would sometimes make their way into Tinner Key Auditorium because you could you could access it. So Vince was, again, accurate in describing the types of folks who sometimes made their way inside. Yeah, and that leads us to the doors in 69 being there. And I think we do need some background on this, and I'm going to give a little bit of information on where the doors were in the months, the few months prior, and then we'll we'll get into the concert itself and maybe some other things. The band performed one of their biggest concerts ever. I think it was a crowd of 20,000 people that had sold out Madison Square Garden on January 24th. The single Wishful Sinful was just released in early February. And Jim, a little foreshadowing here, he was charged with drinking and driving and also not in possession of a valid driver's license. He was issued a ticket, but upon refusing to sign it, is arrested and charged on February, on February 7th. Jim records poetry on February 9th at the Electric Sound Studios in what becomes now known later 
as the Lost Paris Tapes, which is an, a whole podcast probably un, unto itself one day. And on February 25th, what has now been titled The Rock is Dead Sessions takes place after a dinner break at a local Mexican restaurant up the street called The Blue Boar, in which plenty of drinking took place. And there are a lot of elements that that are here that are the building blocks of Miami that we're going to talk about, and even full lines that are sort of rehashed during the concert. What do you guys think about The Rock is Dead Sessions? I really like the Rock is Dead session. I know that there is a website out there that refers to it as three different sessions, but I don't really believe that's the case. I think it was a session to record or workshop Whiskey Mystics and Men, which then turned into a jam session. When the drinking occurred and the taco eating, I don't know. But I think Rock is Dead is one of the great Doors jams. It's almost a disappointment that Ray is playing the Mellotron because in some ways it sounds unique and I like it, but it also hampers his playing. So the whole session is sort of Krieger dominant. And I don't personally believe we know who the bass player was. In the official release, it was credited to Harvey Brooks. Perhaps Amandi can fill in here, but to me, it doesn't sound like Harvey Brooks. He was a, a very technical, very jazzy player. And whoever's playing in Rock is Dead is playing some very simple stuff. I have always thought that the Woman is a Devil section almost sounded rehearsed the way Robbie and the bass player really lock into those licks. It sounds to me almost a bit rehearsed. I think Rock is Dead has many great elements. And of course, we'll eventually get to the No Revolution section, which is what made the appearance in Miami multiple times, as it did multiple times appear in Rock is Dead. I got a few things on my chest. I got to get them off. Now listen, 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 listen. Now, I don't want to hear no talk about no revolution. And I swear to God, I don't want to hear no talk about no constitution. And in my frame of mind, I am in no mood for no talk about no... Cremation. The only thing I'm interested in, I want to have a good time. I don't want to hear no talk about no riots, no demonstrations, no calcitrations, no impablermations. There's only one thing I want to see. That's some dancing. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have a good time. Let's roll. I agree with Travis in the sense of I, I really like it. It's a, it's a Doors improvisational jam that I really do think just kind of started as an idea, as a riff, and as a concept. And whether it was the uh, the alcohol or, or the substances or just the mood, it, it kind of spiraled into this really interesting long jam that was the overview of the history of rock going from, you know, early Elvis to the early blues all the way to the surf rock and roll of the early 1960s and then culminating in this big idea of Jim's, which was that rock had become decadent and rock had become dead, predating Lenny Kravitz's song of by about 40 years almost yeah. to, where he, he finally pronounced it. And and truth be told, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would argue today in the year 2024, rock is dead. I just, I, did, I don't think Jim probably thought it might have uh, had another 30 or 40 years after it. But I, I love the session. I love the raw session. And I love what Paul Rothschild did in editing it down to that 15-minute jam 
which I think really works well. And it's a it's a pleasurable listen. And Bradley, we talked about it on the episode on the 97 box set. It was really the first time we had a chance to hear it. As to Travis's point about Woman is a Devil, one of the tracks that I actually was able to play for Danny was the actual full standalone version of Woman is a Devil, which he had never heard before. And we know that had been part of the Doors repertoire dating back to their club days uh, at the Whiskey. So it wouldn't have surprised me that uh, Robbie and Jim were so in sync on that because it was a song that they had played many times before. I think there's also, I don't know if they ever dispelled this rumor, but there's also a rumor that supposedly six minutes or so were missing from Rock is Dead, even that we don't have nowadays, that was said to have been the best part of the whole jam. Have you ever heard that, Travis? Yeah, I think that was uh, something Ray Manzarek said a long time ago. I could not possibly recall when or where, but he did say, oh, the best part of it was lost when they were changing a reel or something. Yeah, so who who knows? But th- I also think that it's really great. The building block for Miami is there, of course, and that's February 25th, but even backing up a day, starting February 24th, we had the, though so this is from dailydoorshistory.com, or doorshistory.com. This is a website that I don't think has been updated in probably 15 or so years, but I did pull this information from here, so the dates could definitely be wrong. I don't know if we know the exact dates, but I'm just going to read this information from DoorsHistory.com, and uh, we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit. Maybe you both have some more information on this. The week prior to the Miami incident, Jim attends these performances religiously with a group of friends and sits right in the front row for every one of them from February 24th to the 28th. And this is referring to the, the Living Theater performances. These shows slash displays, without a doubt, have a major influence on Jim's upcoming legendary performance. The Living Theater challenged all boundaries of moral decency and portrayed scantily dressed actors artistically confronting societal rules and regulations according to the norms of love, decency, morality, and freedom of expression. Both on and off stage throughout the aisles, Jim was absolutely enthralled by these performances and tried to figure out a way to incorporate some of the energy and expression into his performances. He will do this next performance as the star of his own show run by his own rules, driven by his own frustrations, disillusionment, disappointment, and alcoholic excesses, all fueled by these powerful performances. Now listen, I used to think the whole thing was a big joke. I used to think it was something to laugh about. And then the last couple of nights I met some people who were doing something. They're trying to change the world. And I want to get on the trip. I want to change the world. want to change it. Maybe a bit of that is conjecture, and I think some of that even reads like a Twilight Zone sort of intro to a show. But that bleeds to the overall you know, discussion. Fernand, how impactful is the living theater on Jim's performance in Miami? Well, I mean, there's no question that it was absolutely echoing and reverberating throughout his mind and his consciousness. I mean, you are accurate. He did take in all of the performances beginning on the 24th of February. 
And it was a series of different shows in the repertoire of the Living Theater, which was based on the theatrical principles of Antonin Artaud, who was a big influence on Jim and, and Ray and, and the band, for that matter. And it culminated in the performance of Friday, February 28th, 1969, of their kind of most explosive, most revolutionary, most challenging piece, which was called Paradise Now. And those were done on the University of Southern California campus. And, and Jim was fascinated by not only the performances, but the troupe. He had actually had dinner before the show started with several people in the troupe because he wanted to understand what they were trying to do with theater and see how he could take inspiration or maybe even echo what they were doing in theater in the, the rock and roll concert setting, which was to take some of these principles. So if you think about it, and, and, and we're going to get hardcore details here because I guess that's what this is, a Hardcore Doors podcast. But the last ep the last performance of the Living Theater, Paradise Now, on Friday, ended well after midnight on Friday going into Saturday, March 1st. And remember, that was on the West Coast. So by the time the performance ended, it was already 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, Miami time. Jim was just on fire with what he had experienced, what he had seen in these very revolutionary performances, which tried to strip away the boundaries between audience and performer, which was something he was always attempting to do, create that sense of communion in the Doors concert. And he then, you know, immediately goes home. He's got to get on an early flight because the show is supposed to start in Miami at eight o'clock Eastern time, right? Yeah. He's still got to get from Los Angeles all the way to Miami in a very compressed timetable. So as a, as a kind of preamble to what you said, there, there's no question that those performances had a great impact on him. But I think, Bradley, the other tremendous impact on him was the fact that the Miami concert was, for Jim, not just any concert, not just any show, and not just in any place. For Jim, this was the return for the first time in six years, or almost six years, since he left the state of Florida to come back to the state of Florida. Jim had never been back since he left in late 1963 to make the move to California to come back to Florida. And Florida and this performance in Florida, as we heard in the concert, had a tremendous motivation for Jim to do a tremendous thing, which he did at that show. Wow. Yeah, man. That, I did. I never put two and two together on like the, the timetable of him staying so late at the performance that it even, even in a psychologically, you know, direct way, even in a physically direct way, it influenced what happened physically. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I think there's a lot to keep getting into. I just wanted to ask Fernand very quickly, what influence did Ken Collier's overselling of the venue have to do with potentially triggering Morrison's mood as well? I think that that was more a factor on Bill Siddons and, and certainly Vince. Vince was very concerned about that because of the logistical challenge that that represented for him and his role as kind of stage manager, tour manager. And, and I think it might have upset the band a little bit that the promoter you know, was screwing them. But to be very honest with you, I don't think it had any impact on Jim whatsoever. Jim was already in another state by the time he had arrived. And, and sure, that, that certainly helped create more of an atmosphere. But I don't think the overselling of the venue was the cause at all for, for Jim's reaction and, 
the way he dealt with the audience in the show that night. Well, I'm certainly not trying to suggest it was the cause. Well, the overwhelming feeling I get from Miami is Morrison's reflecting on his relationship to the audience. And there are a number of interview recordings and I, indeed probably the majority of the Lords where he speaks openly about the relationship between the performer and its audience. I think that this is the central message that we're hearing from Jim in Miami. What sounds like a drunken rant is not just a drunken rant at all. It's sort of like a his over, overwhelming philosophy about performing or about people in general. It's I, I look at it through a Jungian lens, usually. I, I think probably Morrison did to some degree as well, although he probably had a broader view of things philosophically, a wider range of material to draw from than I do. But I listened to his performance in Miami and I'm immediately drawn to quotes from the Lords like the cleavage of man into actor and spectator is the central fact of our time. And, and he actually directly quotes himself in an interview after the Roundhouse performances where he says, we're all afflicted these days with the psychology of the voyeur. And of course, there's a lot of Marshall McLuhan in there. The medium is the message, which he brings up later in the Canadian Broadcasting Company thing. But I was really curious to hear your thoughts on this because, well, I anticipate that you would have a strong opinion about uh, I, the Lords. I, yeah, I actually I actually do have a strong opinion about this. And, you know, for so many years, like everyone, right, I, I reacted to the, the material out there Jim's own words, my conversations with so many of the contemporaries and the people that were around at the time, either intimates of the band, people in the band. And, and it wasn't until a conversation and then a, a subsequent series of discussions that I had with a person, the particular person, that made everything, not just about Miami clear, but about what the doors as a band was and about what was driving Jim. And, and this is where I think, you know, this may be something that no, very few listeners will even contemplate this, but to me it's crystal clear. It's like if you remember the Rosetta Stones, the discovery of the Rosetta Stones were so important historically because they allow then you to interpret all of these ancient texts in a way that deciphers what the true and actual meaning was. And in this case, what I came to discover and, and believe completely and totally is that for Jim Morrison, the creation of the doors, what he tried to accomplish with it, and the fact that the Miami concert happens at this moment at the zenith of the band's influence and popularity. That show that they had did, which was the only show that they had done prior to the Miami show in the year 1969 at Madison Square Garden, was the height of the doors, right? It was the climax. They yeah. had graduated, and all of a sudden, they were the biggest band in America for certain, and maybe next to the Beatles, the next biggest rock band in the world at that moment in time. Led Zeppelin still had not claimed that role. Creedence Clearwater Revital still had not claimed that role. Pink Floyd was still very much a kind of an underground band. Their success, their massive success would come later. So it was the pinnacle of what Jim had set out to do with The Doors, which is to create this tremendous influence. But at the heart of it all is a love story. And Jim created The Doors because he was trying to win back the love and affection of the most important person in his life, which is a woman named Mary Werbelow, oh, whom, whom he met in Florida, whose life took place with him in Florida, who was the person that encouraged him to leave to California, who then accompanied him to California, who he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life with. And to the moment of the Miami concert had every intention of doing so up until about five or six weeks before the Miami concert, which is when he realized 
Mary was gone and he never saw her again. And that's when Jim broke down. And that breakdown took place in an artistic show of trying to destroy the mythos of the doors and blur the lines between audience and performer in this sacrificial shamanistic ritual, which was the Miami concert. And she's the lady who traveled to India, you were saying? That's correct. When did she go there? In November of 1968. Interesting, because I haven't heard this tape, but it is reported that there was a rudimentary uh, improv of Away in India performed in Copenhagen in September. So, this, wait, 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 wait. So this, this changes, this changes like everything, doesn't it? Well, I'll I'll put it to you this way, Bradley. This is the red pill or the blue pill moment for anybody who really wants to know about the doors. The answer to every single question about every song and virtually every lyric written by Jim is Mary Warbelow. And there is no question about that in my mind. So you think... Getting back into arriving back into Florida is having an emotional, like a trigger moment for him with Mary. There's no question that is what happened. That was what the Miami show was all about. It was wow. him accepting in real time in the in the in the performance after the biggest performance that the band did that she was never coming back, that they were never getting back together, and that he had lost her. And that that's when he basically sacrificed this thing that he had created to get her back, which was the creation of the doors that wasn't even enough to win back and bring back the broken heart that he had over their lost relationship. Wow. So do you think my theory of uh, Morrison communicating his frustration with the relationship between actors and spectators is sort of debunked or, uh, you know, is the Mary Werbelow thing the major well, thing for you, because there are others, obviously other things in here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it's debunked because he was clearly influenced by what happened at the living theater. But remember in, in this interpretation and in this theory of the case, which I believe is what happened. I know it's what happened. Jim had created the doors as an artistic vehicle, right. To try and have people confront their pain of the, the, the pain of life, the pain of the suffering that comes with encountering and exposing yourself to the fears and the problems that life brings before you. It was the way in which he tried to overcome his pain over losing Mary and to win her back subsequently. Right. So when that ultimate artistic aim, which was to create this band and to create this thing, which was wildly successful beyond even Jim's wildest dreams, right? When that didn't work out for what his ultimate goal was, he wanted to blow the whole thing up. And if you notice, after the Miami show, it's all a downward spiral and slope in Jim's life until he meets the bathtub in July of 1971. I think, Travis, I think you both are right. And and I think, Fernand, definitely you're right. But I think there's a convergence here where I don't think you're wrong, Travis, but I think that maybe it could be a circumvention. Maybe, do you think that Jim could have used this allegory of the relationship between the audience and you know the 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 participant in the, you know the the artist could that have been like a foil for his feet like he projected that projected his feelings with mary onto that and maybe instead of explaining his feelings about her if he makes it sort of something outside himself it makes it less real and maybe he can talk about his emotions more that way i don't know Do, fernand what do you think about that well, I mean, Jim, it, here you go back to Jim himself. One of the last interviews he did, you know, he was said, listen, it, it, for me, it was always 
people, you know, call them performances. And for me, it was a form of confession. You know, it, it was never an act. It was never something I was putting on. It was, it was communicating the most intimate and personal thoughts in, in that type of a setting. So there's no question that in Jim's mind, he was using this vehicle to project what was driving him. But at the end of the day, he was a man of flesh and blood and bones, just like the three of us are. He had tremendous feelings. He was extraordinarily sensitive, extraordinarily intelligent, and he was extraordinarily lacking in the thing he wanted most, which was the fulfillment of the relationship with the person that he knew in his heart was the total love of his life and his soulmate, which was Mary Werbelow. And that contrasted at the time, he's fighting and arguing with Pam Corson, who I know the mythology likes to paint her as, you know, his cosmic maid and all the stuff that Jim did and this and that, but was always that substitute, if you will, the rebound girl that he ended up yeah. just staying with for the rest of his life while he was actively trying to pursue Mary. Now, this was finally revealed in an article that happened in early 2005, where Mary finally did a series of interviews with a reporter and said, Jim was constantly after me to get back together with him all throughout 1965, all throughout 1966, all throughout 1967, all throughout 1968, up until the moment where she said, Jim, we will be together again, maybe one day, but I've got to go do my thing. And that was going to India because she had, she was on a spiritual quest. Yeah. I mean, I think Morrison communicated in mythical terms. I know it's almost a cop-out to say that now because Dawes' mythology uh, allows you to think that without actually oftentimes understanding where he was coming from. And there are people I've spoken to who led me to delve more into his actual writings, which I never paid a lot of attention to as a younger person. And, and the more I read and then the more I go back and read Morrison, the more I understand where he's coming from and... It's a sort of a shock to me to hear this stuff about Mary Werbelow, but I also know that he was quoted somewhere saying that, that, that at least the first couple of albums were entirely about her. Not, um, not just the first couple of albums, Travis. Virtually every song, a lot of the songs even that appeared later on Waiting for the Sun, Morrison Hotel, were about Mary. It even stays until the end. I'll, I'll tell you guys another secret, and I know this because Mary Werbelow told me this herself who's still alive and who I talk to on a regular basis. In L.A. Woman, there's a song called Lamerica, right? You guys know that song? Yeah. Lamerica. That was Jim's code for Mary because her name is hidden in the, in the, in the title and in the, in the verse of the song, Lamerica. Mary was her because that, that was the way that they would talk back and forth. So she, she was, it was his lost love trying to recapture. I don't know if either of you have ever had a, a broken relationship or a rejection. I hope not. But if you have, you know how that becomes, especially for a young man, the driving, all-consuming focus in their life. And for Jim, it was very much that and her. So you're saying that the extended poem, America that was published in Wilderness in whatever year, 1989, that was a poem about Mary Webler. Oh, oh. Wow. I'm going to go back and read that with a different insight now. <laughs> Travis, everything is about Mary Werbelow. Everything. Every song, every lyric, every poem. At the beating heart of what drove Jim was trying to express his pain in through the form of art and poetry and song lyrics for his unrequited love for Mary Werbelow. Even Palace in the Canyon? Oh, <laughs> that, I mean, I, you're probably asking ironically, but you know the answer to that question. 
<laughs> I do now. Just a question about the Mary Webelow timeline in regard to Waiting for the Sun. When did their split occur? Because if they moved to California together in 66 and he writes the song in 65. It was was in 64 when she joined him out there. He he moved out in January of 1964. And I think by like April or May of 64, she was already there. Right. And so they'd already broken up by 65 in the summer of sixteen, in the summer of nineteen sixty-five, I think it was early summer, maybe June or May. They break up, but they continue to see each other. I mean, you know, it's like a fresh breakup. You know, he's constantly going and seeing with her and talking to her. And then, as the doors starts to happen, he has less time to pursue her as he would have had he not had the the thing of the doors happening. But remember, he was also doing the doors as a way to try to impress her. Look at what I'm doing. I'm becoming this this thing. And she was at the London Fog Show, right? The first show. She was there at that show, the one that yeah. was recorded. And then she became a dancer on the Subset Strip. She would go see him at uh, the Whiskey. And, you know, as the band would rise, he was there every step of the way. And, Bradley, you remember I mentioned that it was ironic that you had uh, that picture? Yeah. On your site? That was the last time that they spent extended time together because it was the morning. He went from Mary's apartment to do that photo shoot for the Waiting for the Sun photo album on uh, the photo cover shoot for the Waiting for the Sun album that Paul Ferrara shot. I think it was that was in May or, or June of 1968. So wow. see, thereafter she left for uh, England. So for there, is, there is a discrepancy there. And it was a discrepancy that I had thought previously of another story that I'd heard that I think yours is probably more akin to. Alice Cooper's guitarist had said that Jim Morrison had partied with them and had been drunk and they were with him and that he woke up the next morning late to the waiting for the sun photo shoot. And he was so late that he didn't have shoes and that he was missing a shirt. So he borrowed the Alice Cooper's guitarist sweater. But when you look at the photos, Jim has shoes in the photos. So I'm not saying that that story's inaccurate, but there's elements of it that don't line up. And I would tend to believe that your story seems more plausible or Mary's story seems more plausible. Well, one thing about Mary, I mean, she's not a liar. <laughs> no, uh, and I hope that's not that's not that's not what I'm saying. No, 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 I, I don't, I don't yeah. I take it. That. I'm just I'm just letting you know that I got. She, she, and you know she 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 kept a very detailed diary and notebook, so you know, and she showed it to me. I mean, it's all it's all it's all there. I'm just saying, like I always heard the the Alice G- Cooper guitars, and I always questioned it because it didn't make sense that he didn't have shoes when he clearly had shoes in the photo shoot. But the, yeah, he did have shoes. So, so I don't know. You know, it's almost also in their reticence to accept the Mary story. I I mean, there is no question. There is no question that whether you want it, we can debate whether you think all the songs or some of the songs, but like the first two, three albums are absolutely about Mary, but it's given like, oh yeah, it was an early breakup song with some girl that you knew. If you talk to anybody that knew Jim between 1960 and 1967, like I did, and tons. Like the, the 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 number one thing is, well, you know, where's Mary in the story? Like, where's Mary? Because like that was the only thing he cared about, and that was moved because once Pamela became the heir to Jim's estate, money became the factor there, and the control that the rights that the parents then had, because Pamela obviously died, helped frame that narrative. But you know. Man, you you say you talked to him, Travis. I'm sure Vince has told you about Pam. I mean, he's told me every story about Pam, and none of them are good. 
Yeah. But I mean, there is no question and none, zero. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, no one's ever going to tell me otherwise. Mary is the central answer to the mystery of what drove Jim Morrison. And you can't have the driving of the van without Jim's story, you know? And, and the other thing that was always kind of a, an interesting thing, he grew disenchanted with the doors when he realized that their bigger songs and hits were not songs that Jim wrote, you know? Robbie wrote a lot of the songs that were, you know, the, the chart toppers, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Absolutely true. Oh, this is this is great. This is blowing my mind. Where do we go from here, Brad? Um, what? I didn't see any of this coming. No, I don't. Let's put it five minutes into the concert where Jim makes it clear what to, the, the evening's going to be about at the five minute and five second mark. Well, okay, we we will get there. We will get there. I'm I'm, I'm sort of uh, scooping scooping the the gray matter off the ground, trying to get it back into my ears here because this sort of changed the whole thing and the fact that you've been in contact with her is amazing I, okay one more question about the mary situation and then we'll roll on and i'm sure it'll come back up but so why if I, how is nobody how are these these articles and stuff like nobody has i'm sure people have to have read them but it seems like it's not very well known anything i've seen a, a post about mary is sort of succinctly captured to that one picture of her and jim you know, Jim's real thin with the short hair. She's in the bathing suit. And I think one of her friends is there or one of his friends. I don't remember. That's, That's his brother, Andy. His brother, Andy. Him. His brother, Andy. Yeah. yeah. That picture was taken in San Diego. And it's actually, it's funny you bring that up, Bradley, because that picture, if you look at Jim's face in that picture, I've seen probably over 4,000 pictures of Jim Morrison. I've never seen Jim Morrison more content in any photo than in that picture. He is the happiest I've ever seen him in four, over 4,000 pictures of Jim Morrison having to take it in that picture. Look at his face, you know, close up, look at it. He looks like he's in a Zen Nirvana moment of total transcendent happiness. I'm fanboying here now. I really I want to know this. What was the relationship, if any, between Pamela and Mary? Or what was Pamela's understanding of Mary? She must have had an inkling that Morrison was... Uh, headhunting his ex-girlfriend of course she did and that's why she had affairs and relationships with other people and other men she knew where jim's total loyalties and where his heart really was and in fact at one point uh, a friend that jim and mary had in common uh, a guy named dennis jacob who jim used to on his rooftop in venice actually in 1966 after pam and jim had been an item surprised jim by bringing mary to a meeting at his house where Jim was there with Pam and Jim left with Mary for the rest of the night, came back home three days later. Oh my God. That's the kind of guy he was. Wow. That takes balls to just uh, split with another woman like that. Well, when it's the love of his life, it doesn't take balls. He's just following his heart. Yeah, I guess so. We're thinking about Morrison as a, you know, a person rather than as this figure. Why does Morrison stick with the rebound girlfriend? We know that he's not faithful to her and all that, but what is it that does? What is it that holds him to her as opposed to someone else? It could have been anyone else he replaced Mary with. It, it doesn't hold him to her. She wouldn't go away. She was always there. Jim had a lot of other relationships with other women at the time that we know about. Patricia Keneally, for sure. We just found footage of Jim going to San Simeon with an actress who was on Little House of the Prairie, who we spent a week with her. There was Ava, the the Hungarian artist. Jim had dozens of other relationships while he was, quote unquote, with Pam. For, for Pam, Jim was, if you will, someone who would pay for her artistic studio and shop, Themis. She was someone that was, you know, 
great to know, great to be around, who gave him, gave her access to a world that she wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, I'm sure Jim had caring feelings for her because Jim was a sensitive person, but his heart was not with her. His devotion was not with her. His songs and lyrics and poems and performances were not for her or about her. They were for Mary. They were always for Mary. To quote the Crosby, Stills, Nash song, if you can't be the one you want, love the one you're with, basically. Well done, Bradley. Well done. That's And, and, and the thing is, Jim had always, always thought he would eventually get back together with Mary until he lost her when she went to India. And also, looking back at that picture, I pulled it up again. And and I don't know the science behind all this, and maybe it's maybe it's bunk. I don't know. But if you look at the picture, one of the things that you notice is is they talk about this in pictures when you have a couple, the the position of their body. You notice that Mary's in the middle, Jim's leaning into her, as 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 if psychologically they say that's like he's so comfortable with her, like he's into her. He's the one pining after her and i can't say necessarily that there might not be a picture like in paris or something of him but all the ones of pam seem to be she's leaning into him almost like she's the one leaning into him pining after him yeah i I can't stress this enough it may sound simplistic and you know others may may disagree or take exception it's certainly they're right but i know in my soul and my heart after 30 years chasing down this mystery Mary Werbelow is the answer to every single question about Jim Morrison, every single one. All of the mysteries are fade away. And unfortunately, Jim's not here to confirm it, but there is no doubt in my mind. In that picture that you described, sure, you get a little bit of the body language, but there, there's other secrets and mysteries that no one knows <laughs> about. I'll, I'll reveal one here. The first time Jim sang with Ray at Turkey Joint West was done to impress Mary. She was with him at that show where, he, where they sang either Louie Louie or Gloria, depending on if you ask Jim's brother or Ray's brother. And after the show, Mary said to him, you should do that. You'd, you'd be good at that. He said, do what? He says, sing, be in a band. And it was Mary who encouraged Jim to seek out Ray. You know the famous story of Ray and Jim meeting mystically on the beach? Yeah. That was not, that was not a coincidence. Jim planned that meeting. Jim tracked down and knew exactly where Ray was and happened to position himself, interestingly enough. And, oh, hey, hey, Ray, because he was trying to make that connection happen so that he could do something like that, which Mary had encouraged him to do. And then they broke up shortly thereafter. Someone else had that theory recently as well. I'm not sure if they had uh, confirmed it or heard that from Mary like you have, but someone else did mention that only a few months ago. It was uh, it was me on on the sixty five podcast. That was my theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was me. What, what was the theory? <laughs> what was the theory? D- just that that Jim that it was not a, a mystical meeting that that Jim knew. I, I forget what I said exactly in sixty five podcast, but Jim Cherry had sort of like, hey, this wasn't exactly you know it, it might it wasn't really happenstance. And I went as far to say that Jim probably did. Uh, he knew what he wanted, and he was oh. looking for Ray. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. Jim planned that. Jim planned everything. Jim was one of the most intelligent people in the world. I mean, at that time, certainly. And Mary always said he knew where I was all the time. He followed me everywhere. Even if I moved and I wouldn't give him my address out or I didn't have my phone, he would always show up. He always knew where I was. And the song that he wrote later on Morrison Hotel, The Spy, that's about what he used to do with Mary. He would spy on her and try and follow her and, and, and position himself to run into her. He says, 
they used to run into each other all the time up and down the Sunset Strip in L.A. while she was working at Gazzari's as a, as a dancer, as a go-go dancer. But they were, of course, intentional run-ins that Jim had orchestrated. Yeah, you mean to tell me that, that the Oliver Stone scene where they're coming home with groceries at Pam is is not accurate? My my gosh. Sorry, I hate to I hate to be the myth buster, but no, not not accurate. Oh, damn, there's no low grade acid. <laughs> how did you how did you pull that quote out of your out of your ass there, Travis? I don't know. <laughs> Someone else commented on that recently, so it was in the front of my mind. Uh, yeah, you love the. It's okay. You love the Stone movie. It's all right. Um, I watched it recently for the first time in. Uh, it must be over a decade or two dec. Maybe not two decades, but definitely over a decade. It does not age well. It's it's very bad. Yeah, apparently they came up with a new 4K release of it. I'm, I'm, should I get that or should I not? Who knows? But uh, we will move on. Man, this was a a great detour. We've been away in India talking about Mary Warbelow as well. But getting back to the show, we let's talk about the day of the show. And I think this, with the newfound contextualization, we will we will get into this on Saturday, March 1st, on the way to Miami. And this also comes from the same site, DoorsHistory.com. So maybe hasn't aged as well. I'm not sure. But I, I feel like it's a good buffer. Overall, I think most of the information is pretty, pretty good info. The show in Miami is to, to be the kickoff of the Doors' biggest tour ever, set to begin eight days following the show. Jim and Pam have made reservations to take a short vacation in, Jam- in Jamaica following the show before the long tour begins. They have a house prepared for them and have already purchased airplane tickets. Jim and Pam, while getting ready for the airport, have a huge fight. They resolve matters enough to arrive together, but while at the airport, they have another fight, and Jim ultimately sends her home, not wanting to take her along. Through all the commotion, Jim misses his flight to Miami and drinks quickly and heavily in the airport bar waiting to- for the next flight. He drinks right onto the next flight and talks the stewardess into giving him as many drinks as he can before a stopover in New Orleans, where he gets off to slam a few more and ends up losing track of his flight again. He calls the doors to tell them he is in New Orleans, he has arranged for yet another flight, and he will be a little late and a lot drunk. The hall, and you talked about this, Travis, we've already talked about this a little bit, but bring it up anyway. The hall is designed to hold 7,000, and the official count for the show was over 12,000 almost double the capacity. And this also mentions not counting the hundreds who crawled the second floor windows after scaling the walls, which uh, I interviewed Larry Peasy. He was one of the promoters and he did specifically mention that he was trying to keep peace, but somebody did climb the wall and jump down a rope. And he was pretty much, I think through the center somewhere. And he said, you know what? You can stay since you tried so hard to get in the venue. But there was definitely a lot of that. The promoters took out the chairs in the hall in an attempt to cr- to cram more people in and make more money for themselves. And this, and this upset the manager of the doors, Bill Siddons, who was guaranteed $25,000 based on the hall having a $42,000 maximum, but was not per- given a percentage deal as the promoters took in over $75,000. They had upped the scale without upping the doors fee. Arguments go on for over an hour while all await Jim's arrival. Ultimately, Siddons considers taking the equipment off the stage and not playing at all, but eventually the show does go on. And of course, some of that may be dated information, but I feel like it's a good write-up. And so if you if any of that is not factual, you know, I, I think it overall it does do a good job at telling the story of the situation, though. Then we move on to the show, and this comes via the amazing site, The Mild Equator. If you get a chance, go over check out The Mild Equator. Chris Summondet and Logan Jansen do a great job over there at The Mild Equator. The promotion is by The Image, uh, Ken Collier, Jim Collier, and Chuck Gross. And also performing, we have The Echo and The Brimstone. 
And here we get into an interesting bit of information, which that this tape was recorded and was eventually used in the Miami trial. We're going to get into the set list eventually, but Travis, what do you, can you tell us a bit about this tape? I would love to start with a question for Fernand here. I I'm just I won't be surprised if something comes out of left field. Do you believe that the circulating tape is the same tape used in the trial? And if so, why? So to my knowledge, there there has only been one verified audio document of the Miami concert, the, the, the audience recording, right? Now, there has been credible reports of film of the Miami concert, 16 millimeter and 8 millimeter home movie films that are in private circulation. But those, to my knowledge, do not have audio. So my understanding is, is that certainly what is in the, the bootlegs, the circulating bootlegs that we've had, and what I think was introduced in the trial, it is always come back to that singular audio source, which is the one taper that we know of. Now, we know that the band did not have any kind of a soundboard recording. They were not planning on preserving this concert like they did in the future, the Aquarius shows later in, in July and, and the the, uh, the concerts in that they recorded in the Hollywood Bowl and for the Feast of Friends tour and then for the Roadhouse Floor Tours in 1970. So to my knowledge, Travis, this is the only audio document of the concert. Yeah, well, yeah, I would tend to agree that's the only verifiable uh, sound recording. I guess I had I tend to believe that it's the same tape used in the trial because the runtime is described as being around 57 minutes in the trial documents which correlates with what we have. But I've never really heard a detailed explanation of how that tape leaked whether it came from law enforcement or whether it came out via a parallel lineage of tapes so to speak uh you know a copy that was made before it was handed over or whatever you know what i always struggled with because i've read the trial transcript as i'm sure you guys have too from miami and and a lot of the reports of you know jim saying in the concert do you want to see my cock do you want to see it? That was never captured on any of the bootlegs of the Miami show. And I've heard, you know, every bootleg to try and see if I can find that audio snippet. So there's a lot of elements that were described in the trial and in the reports that were not captured on that that document, which has always been a, a source of interest for me. It's interesting that Vince, he's he's been repeating the same phrase for as long as I can recall that Morrison said, let's get naked. I want to see some skin. And once we start examining the cuts in the tape, I've only I've only got speculation to offer here, but but there are obviously cuts in that tape, and and there are different kinds of cuts in that tape with different sonic qualities, and and like I suspect that any incriminating remark may have been recorded. Uh, again, speculation, yeah. But Vince specifically says, "I want to see some skin," and we don't hear that on the tape either, because that would have been pretty damning for him, I think, at the time. Agreed, agreed. And, and you know, I remember he probably told you the same thing. The thing, the image that Vince has after the concert that he always says stayed emblazoned in his mind was like mounds of clothes, you know, all throughout the floor of the arena, literally like mounds of clothes, like underwear, pants, you know, shirts, shoes. And he kept saying, how did these kids get home? Yeah. They had to have been naked. Like they literally had to have left in full blown nudity because the, the, the pounds and the piles of clothes were so high everywhere in the uh, in the arena. Do you dispute that, or are you in line with that comment? Well, you know, I, 
I, I hate to dispute something, an event that I was born six years after it happened. So it's certainly not <laughs> my place to say yes or no. And and unfortunately, because we don't have any film of the actual aftermath of the show, it's hard to say otherwise. But, you know, I, I, I it sounds like it could have happened, sure. Yeah, I tend to agree. He's, Vince has always been pretty certain of his memories. Some of his memories, of course, are stranger than others. This one, to me, seems in line with reality. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm looking through our... Me and Travis have talked about this a lot. I was looking for the cuts that I remember. It's, there are a couple of things on circulating tapes that can be discernible. Uh, one of the things, of course, that me and Travis talked about was it Touch Me that has that weird... Uh, the weird sound or the touch me drums there's i think to show up in the middle of when the music's over at one point correct yeah there's two yeah there's two very distinct anomalies yeah anomalies I, i call them repeats because there's a harmonica blast that enters into the moment in touch me when john and ray are trying to restart the song And there are some missing bars of, of drums there as well. During when the music's over, where there are a multitude of various cuts, the line where he says, uh, got the animals all worked up. Got the animals worked up, yeah. Yeah. Is covered up by a snippet of that Touch Me drum interlude. drum and piano bass interlude and there was a whole discussion over the years about why that happened and there was a lot of educated speculation about the nature of an eight track continuous loop cartridge and how that works because these repeats happen almost every 18 minutes now i haven't personally timed it out and of course which version do you use because the tape speed varies from uh, copy to copy or source to source. Now, there's, there's so much to say about about this tape and about the different lineages of of the recording. I mean, I don't even know where to begin, to be frank. But but certainly there are repeats in there of these sections. And the question is whether they were put there deliberately or whether they occurred as the result of the malfunction of an eight-track playback device. Yeah. and And just to be transparent, a week after this comes out, we will have a discussion with the taper. We'll just call him Reverend Joe. How about that? We'll have a discussion with Reverend Dr- Joe, who is now in the ministry, uh, as if the the story didn't need another turn. But he is the taper, and he's the one mentioned in the trial document. So we talked to him, and he, there th- he says that the some of the things that are considered cuts or could be considered cuts were caused by the tape machine, possibly being stopped and started anytime it would stop and start. But some of them do appear to be very clean cuts. There seems to be a cut to me, like in Love Me Two Times, I thought there was. Uh, There's a cut that almost seems like it happens mid-ran in Light My Fire. That happens, that I mean you've discussed, Travis. And when the music's over is when the tape runs out. Before I say 
and but there appears to be cuts in it as well. So, you know, how many cuts are there and how, you know, how much time is missing? It's really, who knows? I mean, if you, if you think about the tape and talking to Joe about the tape, he said that he recorded start to stop until the tape ran out. We're missing if the version we have in circulation, there's a vinyl source that has a little bit more at the beginning that we're missing. Uh, how, how, how much did we say was missing there, Travis? It wasn't a lot. Maybe at the start, there's, uh, there is a bizarre additional second or two at most of harmonica, which sort of sounds like a low rumbling train. If a harmonica could make it sound like a train. But to me, that also sounds somewhat anomalous. Like that whole tape uh, featured on that bootleg has a pumping and breathing effect. It runs under speed. And that very short additional intro snippet to me also sounds affected. I'm really curious what Amandi has to say about this because he made a reference before to uh, five minutes and five seconds into the tape, which I guess is the A minor vamp in Backdoor Man. And I'm really curious if Amandi has got a forensic analysis of cuts because I'm talking from memory because I was too lazy to re-prepare and my notes are handwritten and sporadic and terrible. I've listened to this tape more times than I could possibly remember and I do know where most of the cuts are. There's probably a couple in when the music's over that I haven't got logged to the to the moment. But, but Fernand, where are you at on the cuts in this tape? In, in my, you know... Indiana Jones archaeological study of the document, which is the Miami uh, tape. Uh, I, I've come to a couple of conclusions that have, I think are supported by what's on the audio and, and also talking to some people who actually attended the show and remember being there. So keep in mind one thing. Jim was significantly late to the concert. I think he was well over an hour and a half, maybe almost two hours late to when he should have already have been at the arena by. So they had asked the opening acts to kind of play a little bit longer, stall a little bit longer. And remember, this was a show not to see the opening acts. I mean, there was no, it was just some local bands. It was a show to see the doors and specifically Jim Morrison. So you have a taper in the crowd that night that wants to get the whole show. The show is delayed. And if you notice, there is no recording of the introduction of the band. There is no recording of, on the existing tape, I should say, of the applause when the band comes onto the stage. So it's clear to me that what happened is the taper wanted to get the performance itself. And he started in the aftermath of when the band was introduced, the crowd obviously, you know, were applauding then Jim's late arrival and, and that harmonica blast, which was also Jim trying to kind of get in. He was clearly out of it. He was not altogether necessarily there. That's when the taper started, knowing he was going to get the performance because he missed so many elements of the actual intro, like we've heard in other Doors performances that were recorded. So you, that's a good point you make that the the fact that that first snippet sounds kind of slow, it could just be the tape ramping up to speed. That that's right, and knowing that the tape also had, you know, I don't think he had three hours there of tape material. I think he only probably had an hour or so in that uh, yeah. eight track. And maybe I'm 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 bar- I'm sort of giving everything away with my podcast next week. He had a a tape player, and and when we've looked, and they did they did make these. He had a cassette player that he had in his jacket pocket or in his 
coat pocket. We believe the closest model was probably a Sony. They had a, a little one that could fit in your pocket, but it was a cassette player. It was a, a 60 minute cassette. And if he did tape, if he taped both sides full, we think that we're missing about f- four minutes of tape somewhere. I don't think any songs are missing. It's been reported that the end was played. I don't think that's the no, case. No, no. You know, I, I think all of the songs are captured, maybe not in their full entirety, because there might have been some some moments. We know we missed the opening of Light My Fire, you know, the very beginning, so to speak, the instrumental beginning. And I think he'd been doing a little bit of celebration of the lizard prior to that. But I think the tape did capture in the, the integrity of the set list for the most part. It just missed some of the elements of the show at the beginning and at the end. So how many times do you hear the tape ramp up to speed? I'm thinking out aloud here, but Bradley mentioned the beginning of Love Me Two Times is chopped off. We can hear, you can hear the motor ramping up. You hear that also at the beginning of when the music's over. There's a couple of small tape speed sounds during when the music's over. And then I think we hear one much later during Wake Up. But I think there's a couple of small cuts in Wake Up. It's a bit choppy and it and it does ramp up into the midsection of the organ intro of Light My Fire. There are other cuts, but I'm not sure if there are other cuts that sound like they're definitely on the master tape in regards to the motors uh, slowing down and speeding up. Yeah, you know, I, I I haven't really ever gone back to try and understand the cuts because I'm just so appreciative and grateful that we have the audio document in and of yeah. itself. I mean, this is a show that, you know, we're lucky was recorded. Maybe it was not so lucky for Jim because it, it helped cement his conviction on public drunkenness the playing of that recording but i'm just so happy that it's there and and i also recognize that i i believe we got 98 if not 99 percent of the show in the existing cut yeah well there are two i don't know it's hard to say whether there are other sources in greg shaw's book the doors on the road he mentions a 65 minute tape and no explanation has ever been given for that obviously the reverend joe his tape was a 60 minute cassette which is 30 minutes aside brad did you did you look at the the running time and figure out where where the where the tape flip was it was during when the music's over around the 30 minute i think 29 or 39 second mark which makes sense you know they'd have a little bit extra on each side instead of you know shorten your tape so that does line up with what reverend joe talks about in our interview next week as far as him letting the tape run out and then flipping it and then letting the tape run out on that side. But I do want to get conspiratorial here for a moment. What if the tape is 60 minutes, but whatever, whatever tape we have, the the circulating copy that is is missing four minutes on purpose. This is something me and Travis talked about. What if there, there were distinct cuts made and there are some cuts that are not like ramp up cuts. There are some cuts that if they're cuts, they're very clean. What if any dialogue that was there was Tate was cut out purposefully. What what do you guys think about that? Is there a possibility that somehow this could have been a doctored tape? Now, and who would have doctored it? 
I mean, I, I think there's always a possibility. Again, it would go to the question of the provenance of the original master tape. And is there another tape that has never been in any kind of circulation other than private, the most private of circulation, which would have been a tape that was not presented at the trial? But to be honest, I cannot imagine <laughs> what would have been cut in terms of dialogue that wasn't already incendiary enough in the existent tape. I mean, Jim talks mm -hmm. about committing bestiality uh, on the existed tape, right? And and having sex with a, a, a lamb. Yeah. He talks about, you're all a bunch of fucking idiots. I mean, it's really shocking language. Even for 2024, it's hard to shock you. It's It was shocking to hear that. And, and it was certainly mind-blowingly shocking in 1969. So I, I just, I can't imagine what, what would have been cut given what's already on there. That, uh, that was already pretty shocking and, and mind-blowing to begin with. There is one moment which for me is the most suspicious moment of what I will call to a potential of an edit, and that is towards the end of Robbie's solo in Light My Fire, you you hear the, the tape cuts clean and jumps in time. There's no ramping up of anything. There's a clean cut. It just jumps in time, and the crowd is surging and going wild, and Morrison is ranting, I want to see some dancing, and so on and so forth. And it's, I want to see, I want to see, I want to see. And I can only speculate, you know, I'm, I'm never going to get up here and say this tape was edited and this is what he said. But, uh, you know, when I hear that clean, that clean time jump in the tape and I remember Vince saying, I want to see some skin, let's get naked. I can't help but think that could be if there were a moment where it felt like that's what he was leading out of with uh, I want to see some dancing. I, I just wonder if that was the moment and who could have cut it. I mean, if it wasn't heard in court, then it had to have been cut before then. And the trial documents mention that the police didn't have uh, the, the correct machine to play back the tape medium. So they, I think it, the language they use escapes me at the moment but it's vague enough to suggest that they copied the tape to a reel so they could play it back on their machines it seems to me bizarre that the police wouldn't have had a cassette machine but apparently they didn't so there was the potential for an edit to be made at that point when the police copied it and of course those ramping sounds could also be induced copying to a reel more so copying to a reel than a cassette i mean that is maybe a degree of speculation that a reel-to-reel -reel machine takes longer to reach speed than a cassette machine, which is a much smaller motor. Right, um, but you also have to consider the power source of the cassette machine. Was it operating on batteries? Was it operating into a grounded electrical AC outlet? It was probably batteries. And well, yeah. you know, I'm old enough to remember those machines. They would always slow at the beginning until you know the machine kind of got its full speed current of, of power source from from the batteries at the time so you know that, that that makes sense to me you've got someone who says the tape circulated when someone made copies on an eight track and eight tracks get referenced again in the lore of this tape because of those two repeat sections we hear in touch me and music's over respectively and you know it's possible there is a, a mechanical explanation that that could happen and it's and it's not without it's not outside the realm of possibility that the way that cartridge works, it could have 
introduced some harmonica into Touch Me and then some drums into Music's Over. It's my personal opinion now, after so much deep diving, that um, those repeats were placed there probably by a trader or by someone who wanted to mark the copy of that tape and see what got out. Yeah, that's my opinion. Kind of like a tag. (laughs) Like a like a like a spray painter's tag or, or a signature. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and also to know who they can trust. Ah, okay, that person leaked my tape. It's certainly that all circulating tapes come from the same master line. What was circulated as a reported Greg Shaw first generation could not possibly be a first generation tape if the story is true that the repeats were introduced by copying from an eight track because that would require, firstly, it would require the master recording to be an eight track or it would require the Berkeley tape to have been copied to an eight track and then played back using a faulty machine and dubbed down to whatever source. So it would be at least second generation if that were the truth. Now, it doesn't help the argument there that the quality of that tape is the best that you will hear and of course the worst quality sounding tape is incomplete and cuts out just before we want the world but but has no repeats and you do hear the additional dialogue in music's over which is otherwise covered up which is where he says oh got the animals all worked up so do i think there's an alternative source i want to think there is but the evidence at this point is still it's best summarized as just an utter confusion. There's so many different mentions of, uh, firstly, it's rumor and hearsay anyway, but there yeah, 8-track this and 8-track that. There was a guy who sold copies of it on 8-track. There was a story that the tape was played back at a music festival, and Brad will remember the name of the festival. I don't. It was the Palm Beach Music and Art Festival. And the, tape had, the tape had broken out of at some stage. And what month was that? And when did the law enforcement got the tape within days? Yeah, that that was November 28th, 29th, and 30th. It was probably on the 30th of 69. Back to my line of questioning. So who was the trial judge, Travis, who presided over the Miami trial? Was his name Murray Goodman? Or was it just... Uh, yeah, it was Murray Goodman. That's it. What happened to Murray Goodman? What What ended up being his downfall? Didn't he have something that happened? He was disgraced for taking bribes, wasn't he? What was he yeah, taking? He was, charged, yeah. he was charged with corruption and bribery. Yeah, after the fact. So say you're you're one of the biggest rock acts in the world, and hey, we don't want something to be played in court. We don't want incriminating evidence to be played. We just want this section of tape removed. How much? Let's give you some cash, Murray. And if you look, and if you read the trial doc, and and this is very far fetched. I'm not saying this happened, but if you read the trial doc. He doesn't seem against the doors. I know it always sort of has been portrayed that way. It doesn't seem that way to me that he's ever against the doors. He seems very, he even com- compliments Ma- uh, Max. Ma- he even comment, he even like uh, gives him a compliment early on. So I, I don't know. And I'm not saying like, Hey, this is concrete. I'm just sort of putting this out there that if there, there could be a possibility and, and maybe that's heavy speculation on one part, but I'd love to hear it. I just, if, they, if they're found and if they ever circulate. But I don't think it changes anything about what happened in Miami those extra six minutes, you know? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Wouldn't you love to hear it, though? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure, of course. Yeah, <laughs> everything. All right. I'll, yeah. I don't want to spend too much more time on the tape. I feel like we have uh, we've covered it pretty thoroughly and still not thoroughly enough at points. But I think that's it's just a monolith in itself. And we will talk about it more in depth, me and Travis will. 
Uh, we already have an episode in the can that we have next week. But again, sorry, I was going to try to find something. The actual tape itself. Do you recall when you first got that tape or when you first heard about it? I got this in uh, 1993 when I was uh, when I was in college. And, you know, being from Miami, I was always very interested in the Miami show. And, you know, back then, at least in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when I got into the, the trading scene, it was nothing like it is today. I mean, it was it was this like underground subterranean way of, you know, you had to know a person who knew a person that if you knew them well, you could get them. Or if you traveled to Europe, they had a really good bootleg supply, but I never could find the Miami show. And uh, I finally was able to get it in early 1993 through this source, which, and this running time was um, 56 minutes. One of the most anomalistic songs in the whole set is when the music's over. There's a, there's some weird anomalies at the beginning of it. There's a cut, a lot of handling noise. There's like a malfunction in the middle and the tape is flipped in the middle somewhere too. So I'm still the proponent. I think that this has been a long running sort of belief is that whatever happened, whatever Jim said happened. And when the music's over the vinyl copy does have the, the, the line, I got the animals all worked up, which doesn't, isn't featured on some of the, uh, bootleg copies, the, the CD copies. I don't think it's on the the doors, the Carrie Humphreys Doors Collector Magazine version. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's that's a lot about the tape. We could definitely go further down the rabbit hole, but we're going to go into the set list and then we'll work through some of the stuff here quickly. We will talk about. We have the No Revolution dialogue on the on the uh, the the mild equator side. It says House Announcer. Do we hear? We don't hear the House Announcer though, do we? No, only at the end of the of the show. Do you hear any? Thing that's not actually Jim and the band. So, and it says unknown. So I don't know if that was a, a supposition on their part or if they have a different tape that we don't have. You have the no revolution dialogue going into backdoor man. Uh, and he says, of course, nobody's going to love me five to one. Touch me. Love me two times when the music's over, wake up, light my fire. And then the house announcer, Ken Collier. And we'll break this down a little bit more as time goes on. We do know that there's an amateur recording as we've talked about, possibly a film, Photographers for the show are Edgar Bernstein, Andrew Stephen Lerner, David Levine, Jeff Simmon, Anatoly. Is that the gentleman who recently came out selling the pieces of Morrison's ripped and paint-stained T-shirt uh, I, shirt? Yeah, I think it may have been. Yeah, and there's an unidentified uh, person here. A couple more, a little bit more info behind this is a University of Miami students attempt to book the doors at the convention hall, but are refused. Owners of the local club, The Image, are successful in booking the doors at the Dinner Key Auditorium. General admission tickets for the show are six dollars. Eight p.m. scheduled start time. Approximate attendance is ten thousand, which is about two thousand less than what the DoorsHistory.com said, which is an older source. So I, I would tend to lean towards the mild equator here. Local Miami band, The Echoes and the Brimstone, open the show. Jim Morrison makes his first live appearance with a beard and final appearance in leather pants. Photographs and recordings document Jim Morrison's wild stage antics. Jim Morrison is thrown into the audience by the image manager, Larry Peasy, and the band leaves the stage. Audience members leave piles of clothes, as we've mentioned. So there we are. So let's go. Uh, I know you have a lot to say about this, Fernand. Pretty early on, we have get Jim's motif right from the beginning, right from the intro. Yeah. Talking about no revolution, and I'm not talking about no demonstration. I'm talking about having a good time. 
talking about having a good time this summer. And you all come out to LA, you all get out there. We're going to lie down there in the sand and rub our toes in the ocean, and we're going to have a good time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can tell from the first words that opened his mouth. I mean, even by Doors show standards, this is going to be a different type of Doors show than than we had seen, you know, up to that point. And, you know, kind of what I think goes to my theory is the first major really confession or line where Jim kind of puts it out there is five minutes into Backdoor Man. He starts to talk about how lonely he is and. You know, how, how he, he needs love and he doesn't have love and is somebody going to love his ass? Suck me, baby. Hey, listen, I'm lonely. I need some love, you all. Come on. I need some good time loving, sweetheart. Love me. Come on. I can't, I can't take it without no good love, love, I want some love, 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 me sweet, come on, ain't nobody gonna love my ass, come on, I need you, there's so many of you out there, nobody's gonna love me sweetheart, come on, I need it. I need it, I need it, I need ya, need ya, need ya, need ya, need ya, need ya. Alright. Hey, way back there that I didn't even notice. Hey, how about about 50 or 60 of you people come up here and love my ass? Come on. Yeah. I love you. You know, again, it's just that that's kind of the consistent theme that is in and throughout the night, which culminates in him offering the most physical manifestation of his love. You know, if, if you believe he whipped it out or if he didn't, that was the point of where that whole thing was going. But he starts off with that very confessional like pronouncement. And, you know, he's also saying this, keep in mind, in a state of, for Jim, heightened inebriation. Jim was clearly drunk in that show. I don't think he denied it. I don't think anyone denied it. And, you know, when you're drunk, you're more vulnerable, you know, you're less prone to be in control and you're more emotional. And I think that that was borne out five minutes into Backdoor Man. Yeah, that's a really good point. And even even in Robbie's book, he mentions that and it's sort of overlooked. It's it's always been right there, but it's always been overlooked that Morrison directly says, hey, I'm lonely. And he says it right through to the end of the show. I mean, he says it right through to the end of five to one, at least grab your friend and love him. I mean, you know. We overlook that, I guess, slaves and fucking idiots tends to overshadow the more delicate statements like that. But I never personally considered it too closely until Robbie mentioned it in his book. And knowing what I know now about Mary Werbelo and then the argument with Pamela, I think it's like he had no one at that point. And he was such a sensitive guy. So, of course, he's going to act that out. Nobody gonna come up here and love me, huh? Come on. 
even the intro of of five to one, he says that. So, yeah, definitely a a theme here uh, of the of of what you talked about. And we get the in five to one. We also get the what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? that no revolution dialogue. Hey, I'm not talking about no revolution. I'm not talking about no demonstration. I'm not talking about getting out in the streets. I'm talking about having some fun. I'm talking about dancing. I'm talking about love your neighbor till it hurts. I'm talking about grab your friend. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about some love. I'm talking about some love. I'm talking about love. Love, 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 love. Grab your fucking friend and love him. Come on. And he sort of spins it into this this sort of extension of the living theater we've talked about. Just going through it here, are there anything else that stands out in those first few songs? Well, I mean, certainly in, in five to one, when at the nine minute mark, he, you know, he he takes it into the audience confrontational mode where, you know, Jim does something that, again, I don't think he had done in any of the concerts prior to Miami. It's hard to think of any concerts that he directly challenged the audience that way after the Miami. I mean, there may be some, you guys may know of some, but I don't recall any to hand. He insults the audience by calling them all fucking idiots, right? Yeah. And I think this was the, the in his mind, replaying the feelings and the emotions from seeing the Paradise Lost performance by the Living Theater, which really challenged the audience to say, why are you an audience? You should be part and enter this spectacle where we're all together as one in Paradise Now. And I think that was Jim's way of communicating that. And, and it took the show in a very... <laughs> strange and interesting direction which i think was the other theme of the evening and it brings me back to this point i keep harping about which i think you, i think you speak to there where i took some pictures last night i went back and looked at the lords and i think morrison is very likely making a reference to birth of tragedy where he talks about the dithyrambic chorus and how it became an analog for what was once like a ritual that people participated in, and the chorus became part of part part of tragedy like that. And he makes reference to that 
in relation to cinema, I think, and the aim of the happening is to cure boredom, wash the eyes, make childlike reconnections with the stream of life. Its lowest, widest aim is for purgation of perception. And another reference to like someone biking a room with ether and, and the ether becoming an actor and the person who distributed the ether being the agent. I think he's making references to Marshall McLuhan and Birth of Tragedy. And he talks about his own audience later and he does it for years. So I really, I really do think he's letting his frustrations off about the audience. I mean, he directly says it in his interview with Sally Stevenson, I think he said, well, I called the audience a bunch of fucking idiots for being an audience. And he was asking them as far back as August 68, Asbury Park, he asks the audience, what are you doing here? Why did you come here? What did you come here for? Manzarek recalls this happening in Miami, but it happens in Asbury Park. It happens in Stockholm. Happens. It happens. In, yes, it happens again at the Lagoon in Farmington, Utah in May of 68, I believe. Whenever the, the crowd is very unreactive, he's like, what, do you, what did you come here to see? Why did you come to see us? And they're like, hey, we won't light my fire. He said, no, that's a late show. We don't play that on the early show. And uh, he was very... Where did you pull that one? It was from... I talked about it during the Boston episode. And it was a very straight-laced crowd. And everybody was just sort of pushing. I think it was on the mild equator side. But it it seemed like he was very confrontational. Like, well, no, we're not going to do that song. We're not doing this. Why did you come here if you didn't want... You know, Because he didn't feel like they were receptive to him. Right. I mean, he definitely says it with a degree of frustration at the LA Forum in December of 68. And I may be reaching here, uh, stretching the reality of the situation, but I think the Madison Square Garden show was the door's peak and it was a very positive. Morrison was in a good mood that night, I think. And he said something like, just forget that we're at Madison Square Garden, just pretend we're a little blues band or something. And I've always thought of that as like a more positive intentions way of saying, you know, instead of saying, what did you come here for? He says, we're just here to hear some music because he later says people don't come to hear some good fashion, old fashioned rock and roll. They come for something else. And and they are coming for what they do refer to as a spiritual or religious experience, which became something else, I think, in Dawes mythology. But, but mythically speaking, I think that's what, was happening at a Doors concert. He says something in The Lords as well about uh, heroes are people that we live through and we punish. We live through them and we punish them for being that. And I think he saw himself that way, not necessarily that he maybe thought of himself as a hero, but I think he knew that was his role. He knew that the function he was serving was that, and he was disappointed that the audience hadn't figured it out. And when he says... When he, when he steals from Marshall McLuhan and he says the audience should be saying the medium is the message and the message is me, he's, he's identifying the phenomenon of the concert audience and the festival audience, which was still a new emergent phenomenon at the time. And he's sort of saying that we could empower ourselves with this knowledge, but he was too, but the audience was too busy being wrapped and they didn't realise their own power. They were... They were spectators, and I think that's why he writes about cinema so much because I think he sees cinema as an art form that's created by what Walter Lippmann called the cool observer for the bewildered herd who lives vicariously through this film experience. I, I think that's exactly right. You know, and 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 again, you talk about it, it is a theme throughout his life where he talks about. First off, I think 
part of what what started to happen in 1968 and 1969 is Jim felt like he was the animal in the zoo that they were coming to see, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you go see the tiger or the lion in the zoo and he just sits down and does his thing. Other times you get too close and you poke the cage and the tiger's going to pounce on you because that's what sometimes people want. But, but, but I think fundamentally, it's also you have to understand the human being at the center of this incident. Jim's art was his only means of self-expression. And he would even say it's when he felt most alive and most open was on stage. So it was a way for him to also process his own personal sufferings, his own personal feelings. It just happened to have it just happened to take place in front of thousands of people. Whereas when that something like that happens for us, it usually happens in the privacy of our own home or by ourselves. Yeah, I think he also to that point that you make, I totally agree. And I think he also in the critique interview identified that he does feel more comfortable reciting poems when he's got the safety of the music to sit within or something. Those weren't his words, but and he, he then he says a, quite a vulnerable thing you don't really hear from Morrison. He said, you know, reading it dry is something I'd like to get better at doing. That I I still find that to be a very candid moment from him. But I think that speaks to the point you're making, which is the music, although the doors will say the music would inflame his temperament in his own words, it would do that. But it also gave him the security to be expressive, yeah. Travis, I think you both have sort of inadvertently sort of steered towards my point. When you talk about the medium and things he liked to do, expressing himself as an artist, he, of course, loved poetry. A lot of the, and, and maybe it came didn't always come across this way, but most of the time it seemed like his, in interviews, the people who talked about his poetry seemed to maybe seem a bit dismissive of it or, hey, you know, talk about it in a not the most positive light, like it's an afterthought in the interview. Yeah, Jim has his poem printed for the performance at the Aquarius Theater shortly after Brian Jones dies. He spends his own money, has all these poems printed about Brian Jones. And what what is the story behind it afterwards? All these pamphlets are left. They have to sweep them up, throw them away. They're expensive nowadays just because mostly you can't find them because a lot of them got chunked. The Aquarius shows were in early July. Brian Jones died July 3rd. And Jim put it over the weekend. And then when they did the Monday performance at the Aquarius is when he handed those out. It was Ode to uh, Brian, Ode to Ode Brian to Jones. While thinking of Brian Jones deceased, I think was the name of the poem. That is correct. But even then, a year prior, or actually it was less than a year prior, I think it was December of 68, the Doors play the LA Forum. And at that show, that's the show where everybody calls for Light My Fire and all this stuff. And Jim ends the show because it sits on the edge of the stage and recites poetry, the celebration of the lizard. And a lot of people gave it a negative review because they didn't understand Jim's poetry or they thought that what a weird way to end the show but the Doors never wanted. I don't think Jim ever wanted the band to be popular. And when and we have an interesting part here where they start love me. They t- they start touch me, and he just vehemently. Uh, he he is very anti performing this song. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop it. You blew it. You blew it. And me and Travis, I, I mean, we were talking about it when I listened to it. it. It does not sound like anybody messed up to me. It just seems like if, if Jim Jim did miss his mark, but 
he blames it on everybody else. Like, I don't want to do this song. And then almost like in jest, they play it, they crank it back up again, you know, just to pick at Jim. But he is very against playing Touch Me, and it's like this huge hit, you know. Well, I mean, Touch Me was uh, uh, the band's effort to try and get Jim back on track after he called the audience a bunch of fucking idiots and started yeah. to do this, this this rap. And and clearly, to your point, especially because he was drunk, uh, that was not something that he was – that was not the path he was trying to take the band and the audience down at the time. So it was probably for him, uh, as, as you heard happen in real time on the tape, uh, a song he didn't really want to get into at that time, not that particular song anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And I think it's one of the few songs that Robbie could start himself. And you can hear it sometimes. He does this. I think he launched into Touch Me very likely because if he left any more space there, you never know what Morrison's going to fill in with and start saying. And likewise, we don't know because there's a cut in the tape, but Love Me Two Times was obviously the next song and he started that one also. But the most direct reference to this point is during Light My Fire, where, as we know, usually the band gears up together. Morrison and Robbie let the bass line percolate until they're ready to go, and then they jump and they launch into the climax of that song instrumentally. But in this one, the bass line is going away, doing its thing, and Morrison is says something like, if anybody wants to come up here, we're going to do some dancing or whatever he says. He invites the audience onto the stage and Krieger, I've always interpreted Krieger as saying, fuck this, and he just launches into the lick. Yeah, now listen, anybody that wants to come up here and join us and do some dancing and have some fun, just get on up here. Come on. because he knows that's going to motivate action from where they are now. And I know I'm trying to psychoanalyze a performance that happened in 1969 recorded from the crowd, but that's how I read it, where Robbie is saying, okay, we need to get this moving because this is going nowhere and this can't be good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if reports of the stage collapsing were exaggerated or not. Vince seems pretty certain that they were not exaggerated, but... It certainly can't have been a good feeling for the band to think of an audience rushing onto the stage at that point if Morrison kept talking. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with everything that Travis just said. I I think one of the things that clearly and, you know, to the extent that you can hear it on a recording of something that's now, you know, over 50 years old, there is a clear sense of dread and menace (laughs) in that something was in the mojo and in the ether. You know, it, it was a a lot of hoodoo and a lot of bad juju there. And I think you could sense that everything was on the, on the brink of chaos, whether it was the stage collapsing too many people in the crowd, Jim drunk out of his mind, you know, what kind of performance the band was always trying to be the guardrails, if you will, to try and get a full fledged performance out of something that could have easily and quickly gone off the rails as it did. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah that's a, that's a great way of putting it. And Travis, going back to your thought, didn't and it reminds me of that soundstage performance that was done in Europe where where Jim starts with like the Texas radio and the big beat poem and then Robbie kicks into that Love Me Two Times lick because that's one of the songs he can start. Now whether that was planned or not, who knows? But it definitely Jim sort of trailing off, you know. And that reminded me of that here. But you you mentioned that, the all that stuff. And then we get into when the music's over and he does all this he it's I love Jim. He panders to the audience a lot of times and he and he does play like the, 
he plays like the good guy and the bad guy at times. There is something that also happened during when the music's over, which was only ever done at this show. Jim never made these references again, never talked about it again, but at this show. And I think, again, it goes back to my theory that there was something happening in his mind about this concert in Florida and what it was a reminder of. And he starts talking about his origins in Florida. You know, I was born in this state. Uh, yeah, 1943, Melbourne, Florida. And then I went to a little junior college in St. Petersburg. And then I went to a little college in Tallahassee called FSU. And then I got smart. So he starts talking about his biography in a concert. He had never done that before. Jim was very private about his background, certainly in any kind of a public setting. And, and again, I think that was such a clue that he was offering into what his mindset was going on in that state during the middle of when the music's over shortly after the away in India section happens, which again, we've talked about the, the significance of that. You know, I was born here in this state. You know that? Yeah, I was born right here in Melbourne, Florida, 1943. I think they call it Cape something now. I don't know what they call it. Yeah, and then I, I left for a little while and I came back and I went to uh, a little uh, junior college in St. Petersburg. You know where that is? And I left there and I went up to a little uh, college in Tallahassee called FSU. Then I got smart. And I went out to a beautiful state called California. And he says the got the animals worked up and all this stuff. And, and the, the, and when the music's over, there is just, it's a heavy sound. Like you can feel it in the tape. You hear the unrest of just everybody. Now listen, I'm not talking about no revolution. I'm not talking about no demonstration. I'm talking about having fun. I'm talking about dancing. I want to see you people get up and dance. I want to see you people dancing in the street this summer. I want to see you have some fun. I want to see you roll around. I want to see you paint the town. I want to see you ring it out. I want to see you shout. I want to see some fun. I want to see some fun from everyone. We are together. We're together. We're together. We're together. Get it up. We want the same thing, don't we? We want the same thing. We want the whole hog, don't we? And I'm sure, you know, we're 40 minutes into the show. And this building is sweltering, not air conditioning, as we mentioned. And it's just reaching ahead. It's reaching a favorite pitch. Now, what happens and when the music's over, what's cut, who knows? But what is there is very contemptuous. It's it's very Jim laying it all out on the line before the wake up and the light my fire. 
also the first the first recording the first known utterance of away in india as a piece which as we know gets recycled through various various doors songs i guess right through to the end of their career where it appears on a list of potential material for their final album which is another tangent i suppose but i i'm still fascinated by the mary werbelow reference here because and i wanted to just circle back briefly and ask fernand if Mary went to India in November of 68, is it known when she told Morrison she was planning to go? Because he does use that phrase in September of 68, allegedly. Well, the last time that they had they saw each other that, you know, that she remembers was in May of 1968. He knew that she had left. And I think it was in November of 1968. She wrote him a letter from India asking for some, not so much money as much as a loan, because Mary was, you know, overseas. She didn't have a lot of money at the time. She had actually paid for all of Jim's expenses when they moved and lived together in California. So the way she explained it to me was, she says, you know, I had always given Jim and taken care of his, all of his needs and this and that. So I figured, you know, I would just ask for a loan and, and pay him back. And he sent her the money. In November of 1968. And then she followed up with another letter. And then that one was ignored by Jim. I guess he was upset about something. And then the other thing is he actually went to try and find her in India. Uh, and that happened uh, when he went through London in sometime in, in 1969, late 1969. He went and, to Europe in late 69? Yeah, he went with Alan Ronay. Oh, wow. There was, was it 1969 or 1970? It was definitely before he went to Paris in exile. And it was not when he went for the Isle of Wight. So this was a, a trip with Alan that he went to Europe in 1969. And apparently he tried to go actually look for Mary. That was the, the story that I was told. He did also visit Paris in June of 1970 with Leon Bernard and Rick Tangway, which is where most likely where the Paris Journal comes from. Then that may have been the it may have been June of 1970. Then, when he tried, he never he never did find her again. He never did see her again. Oh. And it was actually well, a Miami trial with Jim's friend, who I knew very well. That was his best friend at Florida State. He went to go visit Jim at the Miami trial in 1970. This was this would be August of 1970. And the first question he asked her is, "Where's Mary, <laughs> Jim?" And wow. he says, "Brian, I've lost her, and I, I don't know if I'm ever going to get her back." Wow. Well, that certainly casts a new shadow on the whole thing. It made me wonder. I, I'm, I'm a terrible fan here because I I can never recall when the Buick incident came to a head. Was that after the European tour? Was that when he disappeared? Yeah, I I think that was when he stayed behind in Europe in September of 1968. I think he stayed with Pam and Michael McClure. And the band went back and then they got the offer from Buick to do Light My Fire and they couldn't get a hold of him. And they figured that he would be in for the deal. So they said yes. And that's when when he came back and found out and he lost he lost his his head and he was very, very upset about that. And I think that's one thing that all the doors, Raymond Zarek, Robbie Krieger and John Densmore on record on about how upset Jim was and that that really was a severance in their relationship. Vince believes it too, that their their friendship was never the same after that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's another reason I suspect they started doing celebration again. Again, it's wild speculation, but we do see celebration 
included on the fourth album Spares tape and we know they performed it. I mean, they performed an abridged version of Celebration through Europe at a number of venues, but they allegedly performed it in their post-Europe tour as well, uh, right around the time they were beginning to record the Soft Parade in October, November. And I wonder if they didn't try and resurrect this uh, Celebration to appease Morrison's frustrations following the uh, Buick meltdown. You know, it's, it's it's a very interesting idea. It could, could very well be. I mean, I know that he was disappointed that the full celebration was not on that third album, which was released in July of 1968. So it, it, it might have been that that was the case. And of course, it didn't see its full release on an album until the Absolutely Live concert album came out. And that was not until, I think, June of 1970 that uh, Absolutely Live was finally released. Yeah. My my theory has always been that the band was pretty much over by that point and in regards to touring. And because after June, I mean, the trial is coming, Morrison's off in Europe. And I think the only reason they played Bakersfield and San Diego is to warm up for the Isle of Wight. And the Isle of Wight, I believe, was confirmed because the doors were announced around June or July. I think there's a newspaper article saying that the doors will be playing the Isle of Wight. So I sort of... Yeah, I think your comment about the Doors being on a on a decline throughout the entirety of 1970 is true. And when you start to look at 1970 a little closer, it really becomes January to June because June to December they don't tour and they, they in fact play two very small tours and for very specific reasons. And the majority of 1970 was played to record anyway. At least half of the uh, January to June stuff was recorded. And the reason for that, Travis, was because only because of the contractual obligation to Elector Records. I mean, they had to deliver, I think it was six additional albums in addition to the first two, where, where in my opinion, in my theory of the case, Jim's mental breakdown and downward spiral happens the moment he realizes he will not get back with Mary again. And that this project, this artistic project that he created, The Doors, which became the biggest band in America was not enough to win back the person and the only thing he wanted in life, which was her and her her love. So you're saying the motivation was gone because it no longer was a it was no longer had use in that sense. It was no longer useful to him no. to get to me. Yeah. Wow. So what do you make of again tangential? What do you make of the when 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 did they sign the additional album contract for LA Woman? Do you think? Well, let's see. Jack Holtzman had offered them to do this. Was in they, they, oh, what was the label that Ahmet Erdogan was? It's the famous label Atlantic Atlantic Records. I think had a counter offer, and th- this was in late 1970. And then in exchange for the promise of the poetry album, which Jack had said he would release, I think they had agreed to do an extension of of albums. And that's what ended up becoming uh, L.A. Woman and then Other Voices and Full Circle were released after those to fulfill that part of the obligation. But Jim's original contract obligation was not done until L.A. Woman was turned in. L.A. Woman was not part of the new deal with Electra and Jack. I'm sorry, I'm confused. I was under the impression that Absolutely Live fulfilled the six album deal and that they drew up a contract for one more album, which became L.A. Woman, and Other Voices and Full Circle happened separately later as sort of like a, you know, Holzman giving the new the new doors a chance. So you're saying that the poetry deal was contingent on a, a, another Doors album? Correct. 
As far as Jim's obligations to Electra, they were done when LA Woman was done. That was yeah. it. That's why he moved to Paris afterwards. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I've always been of the thought that Jim was done with the doors. As soon as, as soon as LA Woman was done, he went to Paris. I don't think he was ever returning, no matter what the circumstances were, unless it was like a situation a decade later, you know, SNL's calling for them to, you know, like the famous John Lennon, Paul McCartney Beatles story where they're sitting on a couch together watching SNL and all this stuff. But I think Jim was done with the doors and, and I don't think Jim would maybe even pander to that. But yeah, and and supposedly wasn't there a call with John that, that uh, I think Jim even said that he wanted some poetry books sent back to him and and some and some and maybe a tape or something sent to him where he was located that and John sent that along to him as well. The question the question does remain the two questions actually when was that contract for LA Woman drawn up and when did they uh, amend the partnership agreement because Morrison writes back from Paris asking for a copy of the par- partnership agreement if it was ever finished or updated. He specifically writes to Bob Green asking for that document. So it makes me wonder if, as Bradley says, if it ties in for me with the alleged phone call that Morrison makes to John or to the Doors office, that maybe he'd heard rumour that they were recording or at least rehearsing other voices because there are some accounts that uh, other voices was mostly recorded and in the can before Morrison passed away. I, I've heard the same thing. And speaking of the the concept of rumors, I mean, if you're also looking for what was happening in Paris, that's directly related to Miami, you know, Jim still had that case was not resolved and settled. It was still on appeal. And the idea was if he had moved to Europe or Paris, he could not be extradited if he was ever found guilty and the appeal was upheld and he would have to then go back and serve out that sentence for the, um, the not lewd and lascivious because he was not convicted on that one, but it was public drunkenness. And it actually might have been lewd and lascivious in the Miami trial. But the point is, he was trying to understand if he had to stay indefinitely in Paris as an exile, where, where was his money going to come from? And that's why he was in constant contact with Bob Green and trying to understand <laughs> what's the money situation. Bob, if I have to stay out here. Yeah. Do I have to come back and make another album? (laughs) I don't think, uh, and Vince always says that, I don't think it's beyond Morrison to come back and just make an album for the money because Vince said that he had to loan Morrison money sometimes. He would, I mean, Vince spoke negatively about his friends and said that they would just drain him of money. But, of course, he had legal expenses and he no doubt paid for Tom Baker's defense in that uh, skyjacking charge that they had to fuck around with. And I think Morrison, I don't know what his finances were like, but it's it's fair enough to think that maybe he was concerned about money for the first time in a while, especially considering he wasn't going to be touring. That, that, that's and exactly busy. right. And, and he only had about, I think it was discovered, $400,000 total in terms of his estate at the moment that he died. And some of that was tied up in investments and another thing. So in terms of liquid cash and access to like money to survive, without a, an immediate source of income coming in. I mean, it was on his mind. Back then, $400,000 was probably equivalent of a few million dollars in today's money. But oh, yeah. you know, accessing that, and he still had to pay Max Fink for the trial. The trial bill had not been finished. Max was still working. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of expenses out there. But to finish up Miami, the Miami tape, we did, we have Wake Up, Light My Fire, the, the great 
the great, uh, who was the, do you know the name of the guy who came on stage with the lamb and the hat and Jim took the hat and held the lamb? Lewis Marvin Moonfire, who uh, was an animal rights activist. And we get that great line of... holding the lamb, which is, uh, gets as many groans as probably it does laughs, but I thought that was a good thing. I thought it was sort of funny. We light my fire happens. We've talked about it. There are no limits. There are no laws. Come on up here. You know, everybody's dressed in the stage. Uh, we get Ken Collier. You hear his voice. Peasy, depending on what story you heard, we'll, we'll I'll have his his comments in a couple of weeks. Throws Jim off the stage, karate kicks Jim off the stage. Whatever you believe, he'll clear that up in a couple of weeks. But him and Jim does go off the stage, and uh, and that's the end of the Miami concert. We have seemingly only scratched the surface on some of this. I mean, there's so much. Jim apparently moved his shirt at one point, got champagne dumped on him. And also there was orange paint thrown on him. And we do have the guy who was selling the swatches of Jim shirts with the clear orange something on there in the rock and roll hall of fame. You can see those same Brown pants. The last time he ever worn them with orange paint of some sort on them. So I, I've heard all that is true. Uh, even on John's drum set, which is the drum set. I think he ended up using later in critique that orange, tiger striped drum set apparently there were what uh orange splotches of the paint that day glow paint were on there as well so i believe that the paint was happened i believe the champagne thing happened he certainly did you know all of the stuff that love or hate the movie i think the movie was a fairly accurate representation of the miami concert you know he did take the hat from lewis marvin from moonfire and you know he wore that with the skull and crossbones he did take a cop's hat and throw it into the audience you know, I think all of those things have been proven. The only question I think for the Miami show that we should all maybe get into one last thing is, you know, the big question, which was, did he do what he was alleged in charge of doing, which was to have exposed himself and, you know, pulled his penis out. And everything that I've been told and heard, and especially by Vince, and I'm sure Travis, you probably feel the same way. Vince was adamant. It was impossible because he grabbed Jim from behind the moment he thought it was going to start to happen. And he literally put his fingers in the little belt loop holes of the leather pants and twisted them up so that it would have been impossible for Jim to unbuckle the fly zipper that was on those pants. Yeah. I've, I've, I never doubted Vince in that statement, but you have to wonder, Vince always said, why didn't they get me to testify? And I think I know why they didn't get Vince to testify because if he testified that story, he would he would have to admit 
that Morrison said, do you want to see my cock? Because that is what motivates Ray to say, Vince, don't let him take his pants off. Correct. So they would have to admit that. And that doesn't look good. And he was on a very fine, walking a very fine line politically. I'm shocked that there's no images of that happening. But if anything were suppressed, an image like that could be suppressed just as likely as it is that the recording was edited. And whether that is likely or not, we don't know. But I think those two things would sit in a similar, you know, a similar realm of possibility. Well, there is for I know for a fact there are pictures of Jim naked exposing his genitals out there. They were taken by Bobby Klein. There's actually a picture of Jim and Pam posing in the nude, kind of like the John Lennon and Yoko Ono did on the cover of Two Virgins. So it's true that those pictures could potentially exist. It just seems strange that if you had the money shot, so to speak, after all these years, no one would ever, especially now that the case has been adjudicated, Jim was subsequently pardoned by the governor of Florida, that those or that picture that would have that ultimate exposure would never go out there. But I mean, it is a possibility, Travis. You're right. I, I would think that I would think that after all these years, if what the doors actually need is something to make them relevant again culturally, and it could very well be the more honest side of the band and Jim Morrison that makes them culturally relevant. That Morrison was a sensitive, fallible human being, and uh, he was not necessarily the man that set the closet on fire with his girlfriend in it, but he was the man who was very likely bisexual in a time when you couldn't admit that in public, or especially if you're Morrison, the sex symbol, you shouldn't admit that in public for record sales. And, you know, I think there's plenty of material there to make the doors relevant again if they want to embrace it. And I think the Miami incident is part of that because, as you say, there's a love story at the centre of it, which is universally appealing. And if people were ever inclined to pay enough attention to the the philosophy that Morrison had, I would think that too is a deeply universal. Like all of his lyrics have struck me as having a, a message of transformation in there somewhere. And uh, even the opening line to Waiting for the Sun, which was probably written by Paul Ferrara, is a, a brilliant statement of transformation. At first flash of Eden. We race down to the sea. That is a direct story about something that happened with him and Mary. <laughs> is that so? Uh, flash of Eden, uh, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, when he when they met, they, they literally were on the seaside in Clearwater, standing there on Freedom Shore. And then they repeated that when they went to California together. When she joined him in California, they, they lived literally and they had a place where they would go meet on the beach. So what, what does he mean when he says, waiting for the sun? waiting for you to come along, <laughs> waiting for you to tell me what went wrong, waiting. He's waiting for her to come back to him. That's what that song is about. He wrote that song in 1965. Well, and that's the brilliance of, of Morrison, how he turns that love song into a universal message, which to me always felt like a very Jungian sort of transformation story. It reminded me of Bob Dylan's Key West because it's set on the horizon line, waiting for the sun, where that moment of of rebirth but yeah that's very interesting to know and i didn't realize that that song was written in 1965 obviously i knew it was an older track which hadn't developed with the music but 1965 you say and and i i think to your point and this this is something that i just had to had the honor of talking to t.e breitenbach who did the the painting that morrison wanted on the american prayer album and what is the first painting that jim wanted on the on the triptych it was a couple right naked down by the shore and a couple and a baby surrounded by elders further up the beach. So 
I think you, there's a mountain of speculation. Did Jim want kids with Mary? And was this his ultimate goal? Was that what he wanted from all this? And I don't know. There's more. There's a whole lot to this. Wow. All this being said, at the end of the concert, we get those great shots of Jim shirtless. I think the the staging area, the changing area was upstairs. And as everybody's leaving, Jim, some people said he was waving at them as, as they left. He's up and we get, I think, was it Jeff Simon who shot or Simon who shot those shots right beside him? You can see in some of the lower, somebody took some very grainy shots from below, but you see Jim up there sort of leaning over that balcony and some, and you can see somebody with a camera who I'm assuming was Jeff uh, Simon. Who, who and, and you mentioned something else that I think we, we kind of touched on, but you know, Jim, it was like a butterfly coming out of cocoon. I mean, he physically transformed for this concert. His hair was as long as it had ever been. He had put on this beard. He had never been ever never had a beard in a show. And from that moment, he let the beard grow all the way through, I think the end of 1969. He didn't really cut it until, or shave it until after the Morrison Hotel sessions started in in early February. And then he grew the beard right back in time for the trial. So, you know, it was, it was really a break with what had been and who he had been. Yeah. And I don't think I ever answered the question. Did Jim expose himself I don't think so, but I also do find it weird that he was wearing underwear at this concert out of all the things. I don't know if, what the explanation is there. I, and maybe it doesn't deserve an explanation. It's just one of those odd things that of all the concerts, the the one he's going to whip it out on, uh, if he thought of this beforehand and this is a planned sort of sabotaging, why would, why would he do that? You know, and if you read the trial document, there's a whole swath of, of statements from, Hey, Jim didn't expose himself. The person who was the cameraman saying that uh, when they asked him, I think, why there wasn't any pictures, he said, I didn't feel like I could have that material. I felt like I would have been complicit in the crime or I forget the exact phrasing of what the photographer said, but he said, I purposely decided not to shoot that moment. And he picked back up after he pulled his pants. And I, Travis, I say that, look, I thought the same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, right. And then even to this one guy who said that Jim pulled his pants down in his underwear down to his knees. When they asked him how long, I think he said somewhere three to five minutes and that Robbie came around front and got down on his knees in front of him and got, and God knows what he thinks that Robbie did, but that was also in the trial document. So what the hell kind of trial was this? Who knows? We'll talk about the trial one day, I'm sure. But depending on who you listen to at the trial, either Jim didn't expose himself or he had a, one of the first, you know, one of the first gay sex shows in public media history in front of a crowd of 10,000 people. I don't know. I don't know. In light of those comments, in light of those comments, I think it's the prime opportunity to quote Ray Manzarek and say they saw snakes. <laughs> but maybe we said people, people are either lying or they see what they want to see or they recreate these things in post, you know, in their imaginations. I mean, memory is not exactly the best way of getting a picture of what happened. But getting to the aftermath, we know that the doors are staying at the Hilton Plaza Hotel in Miami and leave for Jamaica the following day. Warrants are issued for Jim Morrison's arrest in the days following the performance. The Doors tour schedule is disrupted when authorities across the country begin canceling shows. The Miami Decency Rally results from the show and other performers are canceled in Miami. The March 5th, when Dade County legal legal proceedings begin against Jim with 22-year-old Robert Jennings as legal complainant. And the accusations are as follows. Lewd and lascivious behavior, felony. Indecent exposure, misdemeanor. Open profanity, misdemeanor. Public drunkenness, misdemeanor. 
But and then we have a whole list of shows. I could run them all. Uh, Jacksonville, Philadelphia, Toronto, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Dallas, Houston, Boston, Buffalo, Syracuse, St. Louis, Mexico City, Honolulu, which I think and the weird thing about the Honolulu show is I think they end up rescheduling it in 1970 and it gets canceled. Seattle, Toledo and San Diego. But I think they it gets canceled the second time in Honolulu because they can't come to agreement on the venue or something. But all of these shows are canceled. His poetry is published March 16th. There's an interesting part here. The the sports, just to pull from doorshistory.com real quick. Again, the, the Veterans Memorial Concert in Jacksonville, it mentions that the mayor, Hans Tanzler, cancels the show and states that the mayor of five of Florida's largest cities also agree to stand with his allowing questionable rock performers from performing or appearing in Florida. The new proprietor, Pat Cesari, of the Electric Theater in Pittsburgh is bombarded by objections from those close to him. Upon request, the doors release him from the contract on March 12th. Uneventfully, DeCesari, I guess that's his name. That's a very weird spelling, has already invested a large amount of money in advertising, and he ultimately loses that. In Philadelphia, Music Fair Enterprises and promoter John Wanamaker unsuccessfully attempt to reschedule to March 19th show. Uh, it was March 18th, re- rescheduled to March 19th on this date, and it doesn't ultimately pan out a lot of these just get canceled not a whole lot happens and jim actually turns himself into the fbi in april of 1969 april 3rd he's released on five thousand dollars bail the following day but i mean that is basically it just for the next few months just canceled shows and eventually they do the the critique recording this this doors to history.com has april 28th uh, in 29th for the critique show. I'm not hundred percent sure if that's right. And eventually he does go on trial in August of 1970, but a lot of fallout from the show. Yeah, another interesting thing to mention is Vince Trainer made this big deal about how Bill Graham gave the doors an opportunity to make good and, you know, uh, show that they could put on a decent show. But really I'm surprised Vince said that because they did perform a small tour before they did the Cow Palace run and that i mean firstly they did the aquarius that i suppose doesn't really count because it was in la but he he seems to have forgotten the tour to was it chicago and minneapolis that happened first up in the first week of uh, june no yeah june chicago if memory serves was the first kind of major show after the uh aquarius shows that started and, and it was only because it was one of the only places that would accept the doors and and to yeah. your point, Brad, I, I, I do think the critique show was done in late April of 1969, if, if memory serves. And then it was broadcast in May. So we have all this aftermath of the, the fallout from this. And, of course, the fallout goes way beyond August of 1970. But just for all intents and purposes of the show, maybe that'll be covered at a later date. But The Doors, the biggest band ever, uh, fall from grace, whether by by Jim sabotaging on purpose or by some, uh, what, however you want to interpret the Miami concert, what we've presented here. And I believe there could be multiple interpretations, but what do you guys think about this aftermath? What do you think about the show? It's legacy, the aftermath of the show. Well, you know, John Densmore had a, a phrase that said, uh, Nietzsche killed Jim Morrison. I think you could almost make the case that Miami, <laughs> the impact and the lingering effect of Miami also was a huge factor. It was definitely a before Miami and after Miami, uh, way of looking at the doors as a career. While Jim was alive, uh, you know, they, they were on an ascent and ascent. And then Miami, everything kind of fell apart. And, you know, they were able to rally with, you know, what was it, three or two great albums that they did in studio afterwards in Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman. 
but they never really in Jim's lifetime recaptured that moment of ascendancy that they seemed to be on and and becoming this cultural phenomenon that they certainly were in 1967 and 1968 culminating in that Madison Square Garden concert in January so I think that and then the, the trial and the implications of the trial just had a, an enormous financial and psychological impact on Jim and the band and I don't think they were ever the same it's it's also one of the most famous concerts of all time I mean how many concerts have happened that people are still talking about over almost you know 60 years after the fact a single concert and Miami is definitely up there it's become a legend and it's become a major part of the the story of the band as with all things Morrison and Dawes I think the significance of that show and the reason it's been so enduring as a cultural phenomenon is probably because of the way Morrison lived and communicated in mythical terms. I, I think he was very smart in that sense, although sometimes it does seem like he's completely acting out of the unconscious. Uh, I think he he was still consciously repeating some things in that show as in any any wild performance and um yeah, I think it's the I think it's the mythical terms that things are uh, contained within that keep him relevant, that keep people connecting. People connect with it on, on a on an unconscious level, and I think that's the power of the doors. Miami's one of those shows we can talk for almost two and a half hours on it, and I still feel like there's a lot we left out. I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of it, but in a way, I think we've opened doors. Pun clearly intended <laughs> that we've opened doors to areas of Jim Psaki, thanks to you, Fernand, uh, and definitely thanks to Travis as well. But there's some things that I think we've talked about that I don't know if anybody has touched on, and especially of, of a reason why Miami happened or something I've definitely not heard in my circles, and I don't know if Travis has ever heard in his circles, of why Miami happened with Mary and that whole link there. It's definitely an interesting bit, and I think that I would love to explore that more. I don't know. I think there's more to talk about on her eventually. And I, I definitely respect her privacy, but I think you for Nan, from your talks, whether I, whether I'd even love to have you back on to talk about that later on uh, and maybe even break this down even more. Cause I think there's so much to glean from that. You know, thank you both so much for joining me here and talking about Miami and I'll be sure to link everything, anything you got going on for Nan that people can still find you at the same place. Adam on Dion air. If you want to check that out, check him out on MSNBC. I'm sure you'll find him around there. And Travis, uh, what do you got? Anything you want to talk about, Mr. Good Trips? No, I've got a YouTube account, but I wouldn't waste your time looking at it. But if you want to, it is it is called Mr. Good Trips and it's on YouTube. You'll find it. You'll find it. All right. Thank you both for joining me. Yeah. Can't wait to have you both back on. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, bro. Thank you again to Fernand Amondi and Travis Williamson. You can find Fernand at Amondi on Air on X. And you can find Travis Williamson's YouTube, Mr. Good Trips, without the I, M-R-G-O-O-D-T-R-P-S, on YouTube. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching for Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo. I hope to meet you back here, but until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. Thank you.